I'm delighted to welcome Axel Ferrerol of SAP for this next Mastercast. And what can I say about Axel? Well, he's a rugby-loving monarchist. Um, and how many rugby-loving monarchists are there in this world? Um, yes, he was born in, in Monaco. We met Axel about 11 years ago when he was at the time working for SAP's sales enablement team. Well, he still is. Um, and we were doing an initiative for the um, sales leaders in Europe. And Axel's one of these people who has the most incredibly bright ideas about anything to do with enablement. He has a passion for sales. He has a passion for sales enablement, particularly in development. And he's always pushing new frontiers. And he was the one who really threw down the gauntlet to us and said, come on, Phil, let's, let's create a master's program for SAP. And, uh, and so we did. And, and um, it's become one of their most uh, successful programs of all time. Um, there's constantly queues of people waiting to attend it. And uh, he's really created an incredible legacy in that respect. Of course, he was one of the very first cohorts that was on the very first cohort that started the program back in 2000 and I want to say 11 or 12. Um, and this Mastercast is about um, Axel's final thesis, which is all to do with looking for ways to best get transformation from training and development initiatives. So on that note, um, I hope you enjoyed this next interview. And, um, and uh, yeah, let's uh, sit back and enjoy the conversation with Axel. Thank you very much. So, Axel, first of all, I just want to um, say a massive thanks to you for taking part in, in the Mastercast. So welcome. It's a pleasure, Phil, to be with you today. Believe me, it's been a long journey. <laughs> well, it we has. Went together. <laughs> yeah, I know. And who would have thought all those years ago um, that, A, you would have, with us, I think, built something so long lasting and sustainable and be that that we're probably only at the very beginning of beginning to see where this is going to go <laughs> and i i think the mastercast in a way is part of that journey <laughs> yeah and i would like to to thank you for that because we have gone through such an amazing journey of transformation um through the SAP Masters we designed together with you and Middlesex University, that we now need to take all those amazing research that we have and turn that into knowledge that everyone can use and leverage and organization could benefit from. So thank you for driving that initiative. I guess the alumni network that you're building, um, this podcast series are indeed the beginning of reusing and making yeah, the best use of everything we have found out and investigating for a yeah. full year, turning ourselves into researchers. Um, and that's just an amazing you know, memory for me because it was six years ago when I finalized my research. And I, I just contemplate the uh, journey since then and what changed within me and within organizations. And really, as you said, the time is now for transformation, yeah? especially with the COVID crisis. I guess there are lots of wisdom and learning and research we can really use and apply to make our companies and the world a bit better. So yeah, it's the time. 
It's the time. And I, I think what's really interesting about this interview, because we've come to the Mastercast idea rather, I, I, mean, I don't think podcasts existed when we started, did it? Mm. <laughs> maybe, maybe it might have done, but not as prevalent as it is today. But I think what's going to be really interesting about this is the fact that you did your research, you know, well, as, as we were saying earlier on, it was it was published Six years six ago. Six years yeah. ago. 2014. Yeah, to, yeah, which meant that you started it two years before then, you know, in that sense. So, but I think it's really, you know, I've, I've really enjoyed, I, you know, going back to your dissertation. And I think we should focus on that to begin with. And then I think we should reflect after we've talked about your research findings as they were then in the context of, what you've now learned mm -hmm. and to see whether or not there are any, any of your theories or ideas you think in the context of the benefit of time that we've had, as you say, the COVID environment might, you know, might lead a particular sort of slant on this as well that we might want to explore. But so I'd quite like to cover in the first part of the interview, what you did and why you did it. And then the second, if we've got a chance to actually reflect, well, would you have re, written it you know would you rewritten parts of it are there certain parts of it you might want to re-challenge or rethink do you think i'm not sure because i think you did such a great job in what you did <laughs> i'm really not sure that i, I would I, do i went deep i went deep yeah no the, the, the context has changed a bit so in, indeed the environment within which our sales professionals need to act and operate especially in a virtual world might have some impact. Yeah, we might want to discuss this. Yeah, well, let's come back to that later. But let's go back. So this is, you know, sort of shaking the dust off <laughs> the dissertation. <laughs> um, but before we get started, actually, I think it would be really helpful for the listener to understand a bit about you and uh, about your background. So I wonder, Axel, if you could just give a two-minute sort of what's been your career up to the point you did the masters and you know just to give people a, an idea of the context of who axel is so if you don't mind i give the the big picture to you phil and to uh, the people who listen to that podcast so i'm 47 i'm married and i have two kids playing rugby um i'm originally from monaco and I guess because I was coming from a small country, I always wanted to travel the world. And I went through 72 countries now. So traveling was a big motivation for me. The second motivation was also learning, because I'm very curious as a mind, uh, but also teaching. I wanted to be a teacher at the beginning. But for some reasons, I went through business school. So I graduated into business school in France. Uh, but it was a Euro European school, so it got me into Oxford and, and Berlin, so it got me into different culture, different way of looking things. And I was always pas passionate about technology. So I started working at Accenture um, for three years, then I moved to Munich, where I joined HP, I was Compaq at the time. Compaq was then bought by HP, so I, then, uh, I spent what? 10 years uh, in Compaq HP, uh, spending lots of time in sales. So I was selling in Eastern Europe, actually covering from you know, Estonia to Madagascar and to uh, Saudi. So I was a large coverage and I spent really six extensive years selling big deals uh, for HP, but looking more at the solution side of it. So always working you know, with World Bank, IMF and so on, um, working in telco banking and so on and so forth. So spending lots of time in sales, 
uh, being confronted to, of course, sales processes and complex sales process and bid management. Um, up to the point where after a while I, uh, I left HP and moved to SAP, where I am now. But it was to create the first industry team for Europe. So I looked at that from an industry perspective, but then I moved to business operations, which gave me the chance to apply what I learned in sales to put that and transform that into sales processes. And I spent four or five years managing teams here uh, for, for um, SAP EMEA. In the meantime, I became a certified coach as well with neuroscience background. And while I was doing that, I said, well, now that I've done sales, I've done business processes and sales processes, what about going to the end of the chain to a certain extent and go into sales training? So I finally moved to uh, enablement and training to train sales professionals and sales managers and sales leaders. And I have been in that role now for, well, uh, quite some time, I would say eight years and 10 years actually. And that, that's where actually the whole story started because I wanted to find the possibility to create trainings which were transformative in nature, which was motivating enough and sexy enough for our salespeople to learn and transform so that they could support SAP transformation. And I couldn't find it in the, what we were doing at the time at SAP. So I needed to create something new and that's where, and when we started discussing, Phil, about what about creating a master program for sales, which was a unique opportunity. Um, and that's where the transformative journey started. So absolutely, I love, you know, I love the way that it, uh, that the, um, the idea of combining a master's around also one of your concerns, which was to how to, so in a way you were doing two things in parallel, you were creating a learning environment that had never been done before with the masters, and you yourself was on it, <laughs> doing it as well. So you were part of that initial group. Um, on that particular journey. But I think that it would be great to talk about more specifically, perhaps some of the concerns you had about the efficiency, um, the efficacy of learning and development within the context of transformation. And I was really taken with some of the kind of research studies you did, um, which has helped to shape your concern about I guess, you know, the question that we've all always talked about is, does it work? You know, what yes. works or not? So I wonder if you could share with us um, what you found when you started to look into the topic of how efficient are we in the way we train salespeople? Yeah, that's an excellent question, Phil, because that was really the core of what I was trying to, to demonstrate. The, the question is, are we efficient in the way we train salespeople and does that drive business impact? At SAP, and I believe it's true for everyone working sales enablement, we believe that a good sales training is a training that change behaviors and drive business impact. And what I noticed while I was starting doing the analysis and the research was that sales learning and sales enablement in itself has become an industry. Around the world, it was at the time, estimated that we spend, as organization, we spend around $200 billion worth of training our sales force. And in the US alone, you spend around, I mean, the Americans spend around 15 billion per year on training salespeople. That's massive, right? It's a full industry. But the question again behind that is, does it work, right? And my experience at SAP was that 
sales were resisting training. When we told them, okay, this is what we have for you, clearly they didn't you know, commit to it or they were not totally motivated. And I was wondering why. So I continued investigation. And what we find through research are two things. Number one, only the best training drives business impact. Now we need to define what best training is. That was the core of my research. The second thing is that most of the managers and the salespeople when interviewed by the American um, Society of Transformation and Development said that most of the training today failed to take into account the changing nature of sales. And the changing nature of, cha uh, of sales should take into account that fast changing VUCA environment, so volatile and certain uh, complex and adaptive, the new technology landscape within which we operate, but also the fact that sales become much more customer centric, not internal centric or process centric, but customer centric. And the research showed me that indeed, um, you have a kind of paradoxical situation where on the one hand they say, yeah, the best one drives transformation. And on the other one says, yeah, but my organization fails to deliver what should be needed because they don't take into account the environment within which we operate. As if we still believe in the training and methodology of the past. And I must admit, Phil, that I spend lots of time on investigating also in my job sales methodology, right? So we can talk about spin and customer-centric selling and all those stuff. Today, we talk about inside selling, but at the end of the day, it's pretty much the same stuff, same content. And indeed, outside, the environment has changed so dramatically that we need to take that into account. And my question was, considering that paradox, how can we create a training that is transformative, that will help drive different behaviors within salespeople so that they have the possibility to be effective and efficient in this changing and complex environment. And they didn't know how to get there. I love some of the terminology that you used in your, in, in your research. You know, you talk about uh, the knowledge transfer paradox, you oh, know, yes. which is great. So, so what, what is the knowledge transfer paradox? So that's the first wall you hit when you're a sales, sales learner or a sales uh, trainer, right? The first wall you hit is the neuroscience of how your brain functions. By default, you as a human being will forget 80% of everything you learn within 48 hours. Why? Because your brain is structured so that you forget knowledge so that you can acquire new knowledge. You cannot just accumulate knowledge. So your brain is, is designed so that you forget things. Now, as a trainer, that's an issue. Because even on that podcast field, you know, we know that people who will listen to this content will forget 80% of it within 48 hours. That's the first level of problems that we have to face. We need to create an experience that is so strong that you can still remember more than 20%. Otherwise, why doing it? And the second thing behind it is even if you do this and even if um, people remember it, the problem is based on science and research uh, is that after 120 days, right, 80 to 90% of everything you've learned, you will stop doing. Yeah? So, so even if you remember it, you go back to your office, you get back to your sales work, after 120 days, you will stop applying what you have learned. So my question is, when you look into that and you compute that, both 
statistics. It means that less than 8% of everything you learn is turned into a change of behavior, less than 8%. So the question we need to ask is why training salespeople? <laughs> because we know that it has an impact somehow, but it's only 8%. 8%. So my objective was, how can I create an environment, a transformative enablement framework so that we can increase marginally that number? Because if we do that, we're going to have an impact, a ripple effect on the business performance of our people. Because I know that if we do it well, we can transform their behaviors. But we need to overcome that knowledge transfer gap, as we call it. And the fact that the brain tends to forget and that even if he remembers, he stops using. So my whole research was, how do I create a training that is memorable and usable so that we can increase the impact and the change of behaviors and make the salespeople more effective? That was the whole idea mm. behind the research. I mean, there's quite a staggering, you know, they're quite staggering statistics, aren't they? Um, mm. uh, when you link it back to the 200 million, uh, sorry, 200 billion figure, and you're saying, the well, 8% of that figure almost is going to be useful and stuff that's remembered, potentially. And yet, I guess those, those investment levels in sales performance and, and sales training is still continuing to this day, isn't it? It's money. So clearly, you know, organizations recognize that there's a need for sales development and training, but yet we still need to somehow, like you say, I, I really like the idea of this marginal gain. It's, you know, if you can actually get it from 8% to 10%, that's a massive impact. <laughs> you know, that's a 20% increase in efficiency of training, yes. even though you've just increased things by a couple of percentage points perhaps so mm. yeah no I think it, it's a really important thing to note and you know I'm, I'm very grateful that you've actually sort of got some of these you know the figures around it to kind of it sort of shocks you into yeah this is really is a problem and we've got to try and find a way yeah. of dealing with it and I guess Phil what I want to say is that uh, most of the people listening to that podcast are sales leaders, right? Not coming from sales learning or sales enablement. But I want to tell them that they need to understand this. They are managing salespeople. They are managing humans. They are managing professionals. And they need to understand andragogy, which is the way of teaching uh, adults, right? And they need to understand how to optimize the way to talk to them, to train them so that they can grow in their professional career and become more effective for themselves and for the organization and for the team. And I guess it's very important that our sales managers and sales leaders better understand the notion of transfer gap, but also what it means to drive transformative experience so that the salespeople can be more effective. Because at the end of the day, that's of their interest, right? And as a sales manager and a sales leader, I would expect them to understand this. And I would expect them to take action upon those research. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting you mentioned sort of sales leaders because the, the other, sort of, not connected with your research, but the, the other statistic that um, I found, you know, quite staggering as well is the, is the percentage of salespeople who meet quota. You know, typically it's less than 50%, I believe, is the latest figures. I'm not sure if, if that concurs with what your understanding is, but, mm -hmm, it does. Um, but yeah. 
I mean, anything that you can do to increase those percentage figures more as a, as a sales lead, has got to be in your interest. Mm. means you can actually effectively reach your sales targets with half the number of salespeople. If you can get them all producing 100% of target, or you could double <laughs> your, your business if they were all performing to that level. But I mean, that, that idea of predictability of performance and therefore, what knowledge do you need to have to link to performance? Uh, perhaps is a, is another topic of discussion, which may be outside the scope of what we do together here. But um, it's clearly not just about training. It's about strategy and planning and other factors. But we're here just oh, to yeah. talk about the knowledge knowledge transfer. Can I, I'd, I'd just like to kind of come back to this notion of the knowledge transfer paradox and you know for you and ever since I've known you Axel it's it's not just about training it's about transformation you know that that's a very clear theme that (laughs) so why why have you fixated may be the wrong word but focused why have you focused on this word transformation why is it so important to you I must admit, when I thought back about when we started feel discussing about the terminology to be used, we hesitating between innovation and transformation. And we intuitively sense we had to talk about transformation. That's why the SAP Masters is called Leading Sales Transformation. But let's face it, you and me didn't go to the depth of research about what transformation is and was. And we just put them, put that word there, believing that was the right term. Now, what I did when I went and entered the, the, the master program is to spend three months investigating the notion of transformation. And the reason why I did that, it's because I sensed that we needed to overcome the knowledge transfer gap because that was a very big wall for me and I didn't know how to do it. Yet I knew by experience that I could remember training I've done long years ago, that actually transformed the way I was thinking totally, changed totally my perception of the world, and also that I changed my way of behaving. So I knew that in certain circumstances, aha moments could apply. And this was also my experience because I was a coach and I realized that through my coaching experience and and sessions, people were having some epiphany type moments, but I couldn't assess where and when those moments were happening. It was like you discuss about something and a word, a sentence, or an idea, or a symbol just sparked their imagination and changed the way they think. And I knew that this transformation should somehow have been researched, you know, and, and could be then used for me as a professional in training to help salespeople behave differently. And I investigating transformation. And fortunately, transformation was a solution to that knowledge transfer gap. Because when you look at the neuroscience of the brain, because we are geared to forget, then, you know, there is an issue with that. So I said, but how can it be that I keep on remembering training from 10 or 15 years ago then? And transformation, and that's where Putyatin and Mezirov, Mezirov is the father of, of the uh, transformative process assessment, right? He has created a 10 steps very structured process to drive transformation. But Putyatin is a, is a researcher who actually summarized all the research in a meta-analysis around 
transformation. And what he said struck me. He said, transformation is a sudden and deep-rooted shift in perception, right? A sudden and deep-rooted shift in perception. He called that also a second magnitude, second order change. It means it cannot be undone. It cannot be undone. It is highly sustainable. It's like when, you know, the, the, the caterpillar turns into a butterfly. You cannot ask the butterfly to turn back into a caterpillar. That cannot be the case. Now, of course, this is a physical transformation, but mentally it is the same. The psychological transformation is not a change. And I would like to insist on that because even though it sounds theoretical to people listening here, for me, it has a fundamental notion here that we need to understand. Change is a gradual process and it can be undone. So there is a change, like we do at SAP. We are centralized, and then we become, and we give power to the region, and we go regionalize, and then we go back and we centralize function, and then we regionalize function. That's change. Transformation is different. We are selling on-premise. We want to sell to the cloud. When you go to the cloud, you don't go back to on-prem, right? Even though in between there is a hybrid situation, but at the end, when you go to cloud, you go to cloud. And that's why I created the master to help SAP move from on-premise sales to cloud sales. And that transformation cannot be undone. You would not tell the market, oh, sorry, guys, let's stop and let's go back to on-prem. Sorry, it doesn't work. So you need to find a way also psychologically to manage that transformation. And wh what I want to say is that Putyatin and Mezirov made it very clear that to the difference of change, which is a continuous process, transformation has a starting position it has an evolutionary phase and has an end, right? So you can create a transformative experience with a start and with an end. And as a sales professional, I found it extremely motivating because I said, okay, I can drive that transformation within the frame of a given training where you enter the room and you exit the room. And during that time, you can drive that transformation. So I knew that Thanks to that research, I could drive transformative experience within a training environment. My job was then to find the elements that would drive that transformation, which I call the transformative elements. But I didn't know where to find them. And that's why I went into extensive meta research in many, many area fields of cognitive science and neuroscience and ancient traditions. And, you know, I went in poof, many areas of research. Um, but I finally found 31 elements that I structured into three pillars and I created the model transformative <laughs> enablement model that I created called the SETI, Sales Enablement Transformation Index. Axel, do you mind if we come back to that a bit later on? Because sure. I'd love to, you know, I'd love to sort of make the following observation because I, I think that when, when I asked you about the word transformation, why, why was it so important you talked about it not just from a knowledge transfer perspective, but also you're linking it back to organizational transformation as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that um, one could argue that in today's market environment, this is becoming even more important. You know, this, you know, and perhaps the something that you referred to as transfer climate, um, which I'll come back to later on, sort of makes people perhaps more open to the idea of learning because they know the world is changing so dramatically so in fact we have different layers happening we have the sort of global context the macro level of transformation that no one's going to argue with 
and then you've got the organizational transformation layer and then you've got the individual you know which is where where this conversation kind of started so i think that whilst we didn't know that word transformation would be so so profound a word in the title of the masters i think it's incredibly relevant looking back on it that that word was in the title of the masters yes definitely and i would add to that reflection feel that the master as a transformative engine is from what i've perceived till today the most impactful transformative learning engine that professional could leverage and i can even only invite you know organization to reflect upon that fact that you need a master type transformative engine for your sales leaders and sales managers if you really want them to transform the way they operate the other type of training we've done are good um, in terms of the memory in terms of the experience and the fact that you memorize stuff but the fact that it transforms the way you behave you need a totally different magnitude of change called transformation and you need a spe- special vehicle for that and the master with a two-year-long time frame a motivation with an accredited degree gives the energy needed to drive that transformation totally and fully and the start and the end of the two-year time frame of the master is for me what i've perceived to date after 10 years of experience in that area the most powerful transformative engine from a learning and enablement perspective Mm. for sure well, I would agree with you, you know, from all the data that we can see. Um, but you talked about SETI and you talked about the three pillars um, mm-hmm. that you created. But I'm really interested to, to get some insights into the journey that you went on to explore all those different elements, you know, of um, knowledge transfer, straight transformation. Um, it's quite amazing where you know where your kind of research took you and I, I wonder if you could just give a very brief I don't it was possible sort of you talked about neuroscience and I know that that's still incredibly important uh, for you <laughs> how the brain works um but oh you t- tell me the tell me some of the big things that you kind of found yourself looking at as you went through your journey I guess you know because I didn't know where to go I had a very open mindset and I started looking at, I started from the transformative research, right? And I realized that there were research on transformation, but very little about sales transformation, right? Sales is a very specific area, not very well researched as all the master's students know. Um, So I started looking at very basic stuff. Okay, if we had a problem with the knowledge transfer gap, which is neuroscience-based. Let's see how the brain works. And neuroscience tells you something. The brain is a social organ. It has been used to tell stories. When you remember back in time, people were sitting around the fire and the ancients, the older, the elder, were actually telling stories to the, to the tribe, okay? And it has been meant to be that way. So the brain is used to socialize stuff, to tell stories. And this was a very good insight for me to say, okay, so how can you use more storytelling into... Uh, the training elements. And also when you look at the latest on neuroscience, you will realize that a fact which is embedded within a story has 20, as a factor 20 more chance to be remembered than when the fact is alone. So the storytelling is extremely important. And that was a discovery coming, for instance, from, uh, 
from neuroscience. Can I just stop you there? Because okay. funny enough, um, that's the one, one paragraph I've got here with a star by it. You know, I've just I've just highlighted it in a green highlighter pen. And I said, I, I've got to get this quote into the podcast. OK, so I'm going to read you the quote from your master's paper, if that's OK. Mm-hmm. You said, I came across a new sales methodology called insight selling, which highlighted the power of storytelling. And you refer back to Harris in his book. Harris refers to Jerome Bruner, a cognitive psychologist mm-hmm. Yeah, he demonstrated that, and this is what I really, I really love this sentence. It's a fact wrapped in an emotional insight scenario story is 20 times more memorable than the same fact presented simply as a matter of fact. Yes. That's what you were just saying. And I, I, I you know, for me, that was really, it's really interesting. You know, it's how do you, design content which kind of includes that emotional wrapper yes emotion is a key element to remember things not to put them into action though only to remember them but give you a good cues on how you need to structure your training or even as a manager when you want to tell something to someone tell a story right and that's why sales managers are good for a manager it's also important for them to to think about telling stories right to their teams because that's how people learn that's how people remember so being a role model uh, being able to refer back to personal experience and telling the story around it will really help you know sales professionals to um, to develop so yeah telling stories is important from a neuroscience perspective and sales leaders should know about this and most leaders are doing it all the time right they tell a story so let's do it we do it when we tell by the way as a salesperson to a to a customer right it's important to tell the story give the context because the brain is meant to to look at the big picture and some of my research also demonstrated that the brain needs a cognitive map so you need first to paint the big picture before diving in into the details. And at SAP, where we sell software, we sometimes feel, think too much about you know, feature function and functionalities. It's not the point. The brain needs the big picture because that's how the, the, the mind map works of the brain. Then you need a story to make the, 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 the story, more, I mean, the whole explanation more memorable. And that's how you need to talk to your customers. So it's good that... Uh, manager understand that and invite his sales professionals and sales executives to do that. So there was only one point of research on the um, field because then I went into many other areas. Um, I looked about the learning transfer. There is a problem when you do role plays, right? And sometimes you, you try to train sales professionals on role play and they say, yeah, but it's not exactly how we do it in my day-to-day activities and therefore they are resisting it now there is a full theory around that well they, they, it's called the, the notion of of transfer and you have a near transfer and a far transfer a near transfer tells you that the situation you have created is extreme is extremely close to the live situation day-to-day active situation of a salesperson and therefore if it is close enough they will take it stick it in because they will say oh yeah i can get something out of it because it's really as it is in my day-to-day activities but the far transfer tells that if you create something which is not totally like how it is, you know, they will simply resist that new knowledge mm. and they will not absorb it. And most of the time when we do role play, I see sales guys like, yeah, you know, it's artificial. Because indeed, in their culture, in their language, again, language is an issue, in their culture, their language, their environment, they wouldn't do it that way. 
And that becomes a bit artificial. Um, so I realized that yeah, role play was powerful indeed, but you need to be extremely careful on how you frame it. So it gave me some fine tunings, you know, around that notion, for instance. Then um, I looked at motivation. Yeah, <laughs> motivation was a big thing because I couldn't find what I wanted in my research. It was by talking to a, a professor in, in Cambridge uh, with whom we were working on a different project. And he referred to his book. So I wrote his book. And he was talking about a research by a Professor Room in uh, 1964. And Professor Room talked about intrinsic motivation. And that was fascinating for me because I was looking at how can I motivate salespeople to go to a training because they are usually too busy. And Professor Room says that a motivational theory is based on three pillars and any manager should know that first is the understanding that the amount of effort you put in a training should turn in a belief that there is an increase in performance so the effort should be counterbalanced of course by the roi which is the increase of performance that's step one step two is that this amount of increased performance should turn into an increase of reward Otherwise, what's the point? <laughs> if you increase your performance, but you don't get paid on it or paid or any other mm -hmm. type of rewards, what's the point? And the third point is that that increase of reward should be linked to the personal values of the individual. That's level three, called va valence. And of course, if you pay people, but what they want is recognition, motivation is limited. So if the motivation is limited, why should I do the effort? And even if I get an increase of performance, what's the point? So once you understand those three levels, right, the effort versus the performance, the performance versus the reward, the reward versus the values, you start looking at your training <laughs> and even your coaching as a manager in a totally different way. And for me, that was a key I mean, that was an epiphany for me because already step one is an issue for any sales training organization. How do you demonstrate that your training on negotiation would increase by 10% or decrease by 10% the discount level? Um, or that by doing you know, a challenger training to name them, you know, will increase by 15% the revenue. Can you demonstrate, can you correlate? You know, so already level one is a problem let alone the reward, how many organizations have actually a learning system which is linked to an immediate reward in terms of, for salespeople, recognition or currency, hardcore, you know, cash? Nobody, right? Nobody has that. So you have a problem on the first one to convince them, on the second one because you don't get a clear reward, let alone the third one to understand really the values of your individuals. So... I realized that, wow, we needed to, to think about all those elements and to make sure that we, from a communication perspective, from a, a positioning perspective, and from a hard fact correlation perspective, we needed to spend much more time on this business analysis and business impact, which, by the way, we now do much more at SAP and we spend much more time on demonstrating, tracking data and making sure that we, we make sense in terms of business impact of everything we do from a training perspective. But that was really researched right, since 1964. <laughs> and that was fascinating that I couldn't come across that before my research. Um, so that was, for me, eye-opening. It's really, really interesting. OK, so um, it's clear that you did a huge amount of research into looking at 
at the different levers that will mm. motivate people to do training and and also levers to create a, a good learning environment you talk about your sort of near knowledge and far knowledge kind of concepts as as an example of that perhaps we could go to towards your conclusions now axel because you you started to create a number of different pillars. You mentioned them earlier. So I wonder if you can talk about the pillars first and then, and then maybe um, we can go into some of the content within each pillar. But uh, I know that you know, you've got 30, 31, I think it is, different levers that you need to look at. But conceptually, sort of perhaps you could just give the pillar framework to begin with. Yeah, so the, and that will speak most to the uh, sales uh, learning professional, but we have yeah. the notion of training design, which is the first pillar, and how you're going to design the experience that your salespeople will go through during the training. You have the training delivery, the effective delivery at the point of interaction with your salespeople, of course. And then the third one, which for me was really important, called transfer climate. The transfer climate is when you leave the training spot and you go back to your day-to-day -day office activities and then something happens because as I said within 120 days you forget about what you've learned or you you stop using it so the transfer climate through my research became extremely important because at SAP at least we are extremely strong on the first one and the second one we are happy to create an amazing design experience so that you feel great and you remember stuff and we deliver it using some techniques, even though I discovered some new stuff. But the problem was when, when you go back, because then you have the impact of the culture, you have the impact of the, uh, your sales manager and your sales leaders and the way they coach you around what you've learned. And of course, you have your own values and interest in driving that you know, new behaviors or new content in your day-to-day -day activities. So the transfer climate becomes of critical paramount importance if you want to have maximum impact in your sales activities. Um, but at the end of the day, through the research, I identified area of improvement for each of them, right? And again, I, I don't think going through each of them might be beneficial because it would take us five years. But mm. if I have to, to take some of the key example on training design, the notion of iterative reflective is quite interesting. That's the notion that you need to continuously, continuously do something, reflect upon something, do something, reflect upon something. Sometimes we, you, we spend too much time telling information to salespeople. Salespeople, um, as identified during my research, are activists. They like to learn by doing. So when you're into a training, you need to make them do something and then reflect. What's interesting as a manager, that you need to know this because a pre-sales or value engineer, a consultant would think the other way around. They need to first consume the content, reflect on the content, and then apply afterwards. Mm -hmm. While the sales people are the opposite. They need to do stuff. And when they are into the experience, you make them reflect of what they experience, what it tells them. So you bring the knowledge after the experience. So that was quite interesting as a researcher as well. So that's this iterative reflective. So you go in that notion of continuous uh, mm. doing and then reflecting. Um, that was key for me. Then there was this, uh, I mean, we talked about near and far transfer, which is key to us. The, 
the big picture we mentioned is important to, to put the brain into the situation of understanding really the big picture. There was a notion of judgment also. Usually, you know, because you don't have much time in a training environment, you ask one or two person to go on a role play and they're on the grill, as we say, and everyone's watching. Research says that that's wrong. You cannot give that sense of judgment inside the room. That means everyone should do the role play. That means if you do a role play, don't grill them in front of everyone. Or if you do only at the beginning of a workshop to create that transformation spin through unease, right? Any transformation start with a situation of loss or of risk. So you can grill them at the beginning just to show them they don't know everything. But then make sure you don't turn into some people watching the other one doing, because then you induce uh, judgment in between people and participants. So everyone has to do something and you need to design a training where everyone is active. That's not easy to manage from a time perspective and from a design perspective. So these were great, you know, learning, learning things um, and elements that can help you on the design area. Then you move to the delivery. Now, you know, on the delivery perspective, then there are things like kinesthetic learning, right? Using Lego block to modelize your strategy for, for an account, right? for, for a territory or for yourself as a sales leader. How would you use Lego blocks to physically manifest your vision, your strategy for sales? That drives a different learning, kinesthetic learning and helps you, you know, uh, turn your thinking into action and helps you crystallize your knowledge. And that's something we, we identified because kinesthetic learning is linked to the multiple intelligence we have. And it's not only mental, it can be also physical. And using those type of techniques is something we realize. And the people I interviewed remembered big time learning from 10, 15 years ago, just because they created a dice with a piece of paper. They had to create a dice. And on each face of the dice, they were writing memorable sentences. And they could still name four of the six faces 15 years down the road, which is mm. quite amazing because they did it physically. Right. So anyway, those those type of elements started giving me lots of hints as a designer and as a delivery professional on how I could increase this marginal gain in terms of memorizing stuff. But we are still at the point of memorizing feel, right? And also the peer-to-peer. -peer. Sales guy will always tell you, I want to learn from my peers. And that's true because again, the brain being a social organ, they will learn from their peers. They don't need someone who says, I know it all. No, it's not the point. It's, I want to exchange. I want to know how the other ones are doing it. So the peer-to-peer -peer dynamic is a key element in the delivery of training. So we need to bring that more in what, instead of saying that's how it should be. No, no, let's exchange on experience and let's make that complexity go across by exchange and discussion and reflection. So that's also a, a key mm. element of the training delivery. But I guess 10, I get 10 per, per you know, key pillars, so I will not go through all of them. Yeah. Um, and the last one then is that transfer climate. You talk, talked about that, and I think this is the one that you think is perhaps the most challenging or the most important. Yeah, because otherwise you don't get transformation in behaviors. So as a sales leader, sending your team to training, spending time in training, you want to make sure they apply it. What sales leaders do not realize is that they have a key role to play. And I just would like to mention something called the, the, the we call that the cues. It's called the situation cues and the, uh, the consequence cues. Very practically, that means that you as a manager, once the, the person goes out of the training, need to ask 
this question. In your next engagement with a customer, what do you think is your opportunity to apply the knowledge we just learned from the training from last week? Okay? And you remember, no, you remind your sales team about the fact that they have an opportunity to apply what they have learned. So you proactively motivate them to apply it, right? That's what we call the situation cues. And they, you need to do it. As a sales leader, you have to make sure that you bridge that connection between what they learned in the past to their day-to-day -day activities. And most of our managers do not do it. Why? Because first, they don't know about the training that their team have gone through. And second, because they don't simply ask that question and remind them of doing it. And then you have the consequence cues, which is, oh, after this engagement, you ask them, so what have you done differently? Have you applied it? And if you have applied it, what did you learn? Tell me, give me feedback, right? That's consequence cues. So the situation cues and the consequence cues, again, open and close an environment for learning, for applying, and for debriefing and reflecting. That's the role of sales managers and sales leaders. But again, from my experience, what I see, that managers are not aware of that thing. They are not using it. They don't do it. And I think there is a big loss of energy and mm. impact just because they don't do it. Right? So that's, for me, that was a big, big thing. right? And now when I talk to sales managers, I say, guys, listen, even though you don't know about the content itself, ask that question. How are you going to use and apply the content? And after the, the event, what have you done? What did you learn from it? What can you do differently? You know, and then you become a manager coach, obviously. I think I can totally empathize with what you're saying. And it shows the importance of coaching, which is where this all started for you, isn't it? Because I think you talked about coaching right at the very beginning yes. of, of this interview. Um, but let's come back to the model you created, because you, you built this model, didn't you, as a, as a sort of checklist in a way. Yes. Maybe I haven't phrased it quite correctly, but you've come up with this really amazing model. You call it SETI. So could you could you tell me about the SETI model that you built? <laughs> it's a SETI. Yeah, I was playing on words with SETI. Some of the people who knows about this uh, American institute who looks at extraterrestrial life called SETI would know that it was a small <laughs> sense of humor. But to a certain extent, salespeople were, for me, ex extraterrestrial. They are not standard learners, right? They are... Activists, and because of that, we need to look at them a little bit differently. So I thought that the city was a good approach. But um, <laughs> Actually, the, I never uh, asked you where the name came from. I must admit. So now I know. Yeah, yeah, no. The, the name of city is Sales Enablement Transformation Index. I wanted to create an index for the sales enablement professionals to assess their ability, no, to scan, yes, and assess the transformative power of their training on two criteria remembering and usage or usability. And that's what SETI does. It gives you coaching questions along the 31 elements of transformation that I have identified, built into those three pillars I referred to. And for each of those questions, you can assess on a rank of you know, one to five, whatever. And it gives you an indication of the strength and weaknesses of your training. So it's a coaching, it's a design support, it's a coaching element, and at the end, it's a predictive element because it tells you exactly if people will remember or if they will be able to use um, the training that they went through. And I must admit that I have tested this now 
since the last six years. And I'm using it anyway for myself with all the training I design. But I start pitching it to people. I also exchange it outside of SAP. And um, we even did it for the master field, if you remember. I asked you to scan the master along the questions. And we realized that the master program you know, rank quite high on that, not only remembering, but also usability. Um, while some other programs we have at SAP are clearly extremely high on remembering because of the experience, which are nice, but in terms of the transfer climate, we are missing the marks. And I tend to believe that most organizations are failing short on the uh, transfer climate. So it tells you really, if what you do, you do it for I would say fun <laughs> to a certain extent, um, but at least it tells you whether you're gonna have business impact or not. Um, and that's the artifact, yes, that came out of that research. One of the things you've mentioned, which I hadn't really appreciated, um, was the connection to personal values, because you talked about you know, the three, I think three components you talked about in Valence, I think it was. Valence, yes. Yeah, when we talked about it earlier. And one of the exercises we do at the very beginning of the masters, isn't it? It's, it's going into personal values. And I, I wonder whether, and I don't think we did that consciously thinking about your research. Well, we couldn't have done because, nope. because you hadn't done your research at that point. Exactly. <laughs> but it just makes me, you know, I'm looking for the magic of the masters really. And I'm just wondering whether that exploration of one's personal values and then linking the journey of transformation that we have on that very first module is actually profoundly important, you know, for, for this transformation that, that clearly happens, I think, with people over time. In spite of a transfer climate, perhaps mm. that, you know, where their managers don't really know what they're doing, do they? It is possibly, a, it's possibly the the weak link in what we did was actually creating the transfer climate such that their managers, uh, I know we're going to, you know, really appreciate what they've done, but we're going to address that, <laughs> I think, moving forward. And I think the movement is, is, is getting strong, isn't it, to create that transfer climate. Yeah, definitely. That's where we are heading to, right, is to spend much more time around the transfer climate. But what we have within the masters we don't have anywhere else is the, because you have those quarterly, especially in year one, those quarterly projects you need to build, you are still within that environment that forces you to take action. So you don't fall into that gap of stopping doing things because you are into that continuous circle of reflection action-based research and, and continuation. Yeah, so that, that's the power of the master, really, Phil, is that we, we bridge that knowledge transfer gap because of those quarterly projects we have, which is a totally magic experience and really keeps the ball going and force people to continue. By force, I mean keep the energy high enough and the motivation high enough to keep the traction towards applying what you learn and applying what you learn and reflecting on it. That's where the transformation comes from. And that's what organizations should learn about. And managers should keep in mind that if you don't create that environment, everything you learn will stop, right? And it's important that people understand this, especially sales managers and sales coach, right? 
because we need to create that environment so that the person can apply without any risks in a safe environment what they have learned. And if they fail, fine. They fail, they reflect, and we continue. That's the Gibbs model we all use in the master. Mm. So the Gibbs model gives you the key, but do we apply that in day-to-day activities? No. And that's a point, Phil, I didn't talk about, but which, <laughs> to close on maybe, I don't know, mm. is my key element. There is something we talk about, change and transformation. But there is a, a psychologist called Keegan and his uh, colleague Leahy um, from Harvard um, uh, School of Adult Learning, we spent lots of time talking about immunity to change. And in their book in 2001, that for me was, again, an eye-opening because from a neuroscience perspective, we realized that we all have within ourselves at a subconscious level, a deep protection layer that prevents us from mistakes and from disappointment and from judgment from the outside and criticism. And that protect us then from changing because if we change, we need to try something else and we expose ourselves to failures. And they call that competing commitments and immunity to change. And their book, Immunity to Change, tell us about that competing commitment. And you need to understand as a sales professional and as a sales manager and leader, that when you ask a sales executive to do something differently, the first thing you will perceive is the risk, right? If I do that, and the customer doesn't realize this, I'm going to lose money. If I do that, I will look foolish in front of the customer and my management. If I do that and I don't get my revenue, I might be fired. If I do that, then risk, 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 risk. That's our immune defense system that is very deep within our subconscious mind. And that immunity to change should be understood because everything we do from a training perspective is to overcome that fear. But to overcome that fear, the first thing you need to do is to express it, right? And what a good sales leader should do is to tell the AE, listen, the account executive, you've learned that stuff. I suggest you apply it. Do you see any risk behind applying it? And the sales professional will tell you, yeah, of course, you know, if I apply the constructive tension from challenger selling, you know, while I was always supporting the customer, now I put more pressure, customer may be surprised. Well, try it. I give you the space to try, and if it fails, you know, we will see. But, you know, express the risk, give them the possibility to make failures, and debrief. And that immunity to change, if you don't take action, is the reason why, after 120 days, you stop using it. So that's for me, the, you mm-hmm. asked me about the key, key learning or the key books or whatever that drove my attention was immunity to change from Keegan and Lay in 2001. That's, That's an amazing great. Book. I mean, there's so much about psychological space, isn't there, and psychological safety. Mm-hmm. And I think that um, I think that those that go through the master's program, 100% will get that because, you know, they'll realize the, the reflective, you know, the critical reflection skills that you get from the master's. And definitely, I would have thought, makes you look at how you can learn from experience, you know, through a through a, through a lens where people can fail, you know, is perhaps going to be different to those that haven't gone through that, that particular journey. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we've had, uh, you know, Simon West come on, you know, to one of our GST events talking about failure and his belief that companies don't create enough space to allow people to fail. But it, it's not really the failure. It's, it's what you learn from it, isn't it? It's, it's, it's recognizing that, and you talked about innovation right at the very beginning, you know, it's that link of what is it that we can learn from failure that can help us innovate 
and come up with fresh ideas sort of moving forward. Absolutely. Uh, but maybe this COVID world that we're in will, will allow people, because it's happening, you know, because, you know, the world events are so significant right now that if there was a, a year in which you don't meet your target, it's this year, you know, you're not going to be necessarily fired because it's a COVID world in which we're in, which if you're in the aviation sector or the, I don't know, travel sector, I mean, my goodness, you know, you couldn't be expected to maintain targets because simply your market's been taken away. So perhaps the shock that we've had this year is actually going to make us more reflective about, you know, what's important and and how we can learn because we have we have to think of doing things in perhaps different different ways um well axel i think we're probably reaching the end of the hour now and you've probably got lots of other calls to go on um, but is there anything else that you would like to kind of say just to wrap things up at this point for me phil it's lots of emotions having gone through uh the last 10 years uh, with you, Consalia, and uh, Middlesex University, and with the managers who I go embark into a two-year program, accept to take the time to embark on a massive program beyond their day-to-day -day crazy activities of sales and the pressure they're into, and seeing the impact that such transformation has. Just would like to quote one of, I don't give the name, but one of the manager who was with me in the first cohort, where the multiple promotions after the masters and had, you know, currently a very high position, of course, in, in his new organization. And he came to see me and said, Axel, you know, the master is the best thing that happened in my life. I cannot thank you enough for having created that master program. And that simple sentence for me was, you know, <laughs> the payback of all the hassle to create the master and then to doing it, of course. But um, I can only tell how much transformation such a program can drive into people. It's not only about professional transformations, about personal transformation. And more importantly, talking about the I, we, greater we, it helps you move from you as an individual to we as a team, and then the greater we. We are here to help corporations behave more ethically. We're here to be more sustainable, to help you know the future generations, the planet. And I can't stress enough the fact that we are not into the me, 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 time zone anymore. The COVID showed us that we need to think more globally and the new holistic mindset now comes in. And the master is the way to start creating transformative minds, open-minded minds who think beyond themselves, think about the team, the corporations and the greater goods. And that's the only thing I can tell is that my current battle <laughs> or quest is to think in that direction. How can we help organization through those transformative agents who are the masters? Um, to help organization become more conscious and more sustainable and more, you know, caring um, of the environment within which they operate. And I guess that's what I would like to contribute to moving forward. Well, the great news is that we know that we've got, you know, a group of very passionate people who share the same view. And I think that it, part of it is having the confidence, you know, you have cracked, I think the code to some extent, certainly with the masters on ticking lots of those boxes in the SETI framework, you know, that you've, you've actually created. Um, but it's actually 
having like-minded people now who get it, who are passionate about it, I guess is making you feel, it certainly makes me feel confident that the climate change, the knowledge transfer, sorry, knowledge transfer, the, um, yeah, the, uh, the climate in which people operate is actually going to be enhanced, I think, through all the effort that you've put into building this program over the years. I can only see it getting easier. I don't, I don't know if you sense the energy there, but I, I, can, I can feel it because we're talking, of yes. course, we talk to the students. We just know that you've got a band of people following you, Axel. <laughs> <laughs> are going to help push it along and uh, yeah so yeah build it and they will come Phil you remember that's the field of dream that's my motto yeah build I know I never forget come. you saying yeah, that yeah. and and so that's what's happened and and uh, I think we've we've certainly seen some remarkable successes I think at a at a personal level we've seen some successes remarkable at a at a team level mm-hmm. But I think that the, the real nut to crack is the organizational transformation, which would link things so nicely together. And of course, beyond the organization, of course, we've got how you could recalibrate standards uh, for people outside SAP, because I think you're a great setting, an astonishing example you know, to other others out there about what can be achieved with the right approach, but and the right partners, Phil, and the, and the right, right partners. partners. Well, thank you for you. Yes, I, I think we're lucky that we found each other at a certain point in our careers. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> it requires a team. There is nothing we build for value which is not based. Yeah, on team. absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> so, Axel, I'm going to say thank you for your time. <laughs> thank you, Phil. So what's your selling approach like? Are you selling in a way that your customers want to be sold to? From our research, only 10% of salespeople sell in a way that customers want. But what do customers want when they're being sold to? It's no secret that here at Consalia, we've embedded the sales values and mindsets that customers want to see in salespeople into everything we do, from our sales business school through to our sales transformation offering. So how do you know whether or not you've got them? We have a very simple mindset survey to see if you possess these key values. It's really straightforward to use, will only take a few minutes to complete, and you'll be sent your results straight after. You may be just a bit surprised at the results yourself. Check out the show notes at the end of this podcast episode. What you do with the results next is your choice. We're happy to dive deeper into these results to discuss what they mean, or even explore the idea of finding out if your customers see these key values in your approach.